Romans chapter 3, reading verses 28 to 30, and then chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 11. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one and he would justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith results of justification. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions knowing that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely, therefore, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks be to God for his word. Gosh, where to start with Romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 11, one of the most theologically dense passages of one of the most theologically dense books in the New Testament. Well, let me tell you about a man. There was a man who fell into a pit and he couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said it is logical that someone would have fallen down there. A Pharisee came along and said only bad people fall into pits. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on the man's pit. Confucius said if you'd listened to me you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said yep that's a pit you're in there my friend. A scientist calculated the pressure necessary in PSI to get him out of the pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in his pit. And a tax man asked him if he was paying taxes on his pit. A council inspector asked if he had a permit to dig the pit in the first place. 
An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person came along and said, well, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic Christian came along and said, just confess that you're not in a pit. An optimist came along and said things could be worse. And a pessimist came along and said things are going to get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. And this little parable takes us, I think, right to the heart of what Paul is trying to get across to demonstrate in his letter to the Romans, which is that the way Jesus responds to the depths of the human situation is quite unlike that of anyone else. Jesus does not come along with words of encouragement. He doesn't muck around with solutions that don't work. Rather, God's response to human sin, to human suffering, to our collective and individual pits, was to reach out to us in the moment of our deepest need by sending Jesus on a rescue mission for humanity. In his death on the cross, Jesus opened the way for people to be lifted out of their pits of isolation from God. This is what Paul is getting at time and time again through his letter to the Romans. It is a letter that can sometimes seem very confusing and even a fairly short passage such as ours for today could sustain multiple sermons. I have many commentaries on Romans in my study. I was looking through them this week preparing for this and I was reminded that famously Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on the book of Romans just down the road from here at Westminster Chapel took 13 years preaching on it every week to get through this text. Well, I promise not to do that here at Bloomsbury unless you ask really nicely. Do you remember studying poetry at school? Uh, have you, you know, you kind of get a poem and, and you keep reading the same small section over and over again and how you get more from the words of a poem every time you read it. And then you come to realise that, that it's not just the words of the poem, it's the spaces around them and the gaps between the lines that maybe that's where the real meaning resides. I've always been amazed at how much meaning can be generated from so few words. It's one of the reasons I like writing poetry myself. Well, I think the letter to the Romans is rather like poetry. First reading, it can seem confusing. Careful word choice on the part of the author conveying whole rafts of ideas. But I think this is what can also make it so interesting and it does repay careful and detailed study. So to set the scene for our passage for today from chapter 5, uh, we, we introduced ourselves to Romans last week. Those of you who were, who were here last week, we looked at a passage from chapter 1. And Paul has spent the intervening few chapters, uh, this first part of the letter, looking at the story of Abraham, exploring how Abraham came to know God 
and explaining how Abraham's relationship with God was not something to be earned, but rather something which emerged from his faith in God. And the key issue that Paul's been addressing in these opening chapters is that of how it can possibly be right for God to now deal with Gentiles and Jews on the same basis. So remember, we have here Paul, uh, a Jewish man, brought up uh, within the Pharisaic sect of Judaism, a very religiously observant man, and now he has this conviction that the God of his people, the God he has worshipped, is the God of the Gentiles, those who do not observe the law, those who would be regarded as unclean and outsiders. And so Paul is trying to work out what's going on with God, why it should, how it should be that God has broken through the boundaries that Paul had been brought up to believe were placed around holiness. Um, and so, you know, in, in Paul's story, the children of Abraham, the Jewish people uh, believe themselves to be the people of God. They are the heirs of the covenant. So how, Paul is asking, can it be true that God is now also seeking a relationship with the Gentiles, with those who do not have a history of being God's people? They have no story of covenant faithfulness to define them. And to begin answering this, Paul starts to talk about sin. And it's interesting, I don't know what you think of when I use the word sin. We're a little bit programmed in our society to think of sin as being, you know, the naughty things we do in secret. And, you know, it is that, but Paul frames sin as something much bigger. He frames sin as a universal plight something that is experienced by all people, something that oppresses all people, regardless of their heritage, their ethnicity, or indeed their standard of behaviour. Even the best people are sinful, says Paul. Even the most Torah-observant Jew of the Pharisaic sect, like Paul himself, is sinful. And so Paul issues his great statement of human sinfulness. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us, whatever our religious tradition, our faith background, none of us can attain the glory of God. We are each of us, whoever we are, broken people. And our relationship with God is correspondingly broken. There is no one who is righteous in their own right. Not Jew, not Gentile, not even, says Paul, great father Abraham himself. The keeping of the Jewish covenant law does not make a person righteous. Any more than keeping any other moral code can do so. And so these are Paul's convictions that he's exploring as he's working through the letter. And we come to the next step in his logical progression of thought. And we heard it in our reading just now. Chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says, For we hold that a person is justified by faith 
apart from works prescribed by the law. What Paul means here is is that whatever good the Jewish law achieved, and certainly from Paul's perspective as a Torah observant Jew, there were many good reasons to live within the demands of the law. But despite these goods, whatever good the Jewish law achieved, that law itself does not make a person righteous. The law does not put a person in right relation with God. And this is because there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. No matter how hard we try, and some of us here have tried very hard, have we not, friends? There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. Rather, the broken relationship with God, which is characterized by human sin, can only be mended by God's action. To return to the parable with which I started, we cannot find our own way out of our own pit. Only God can rescue us. And so Paul says that a person is justified not by their works, but by faith. The word justified here probably needs a little explanation. It's one of those words that carries a lot of uh, freight with it. In modern colloquial language, we might use the word justify to convey a sense of finding a good excuse for something. So, for example, I might come up with a reason to justify why I lost my temper. Or I might come up with a reason to justify why I was late for a meeting. This is not the meaning that Paul has in Romans. I think we can get closer to his meaning if we think about how uh, those of us who use computers might use the word justify when we're typing a document in a word processor. Uh, You've probably come across this. You 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 can have your your words in a word processor document so that the right-hand edge is raggedy, where all the words squish up and the spaces between the letters are all the same, and and the right-hand edge is kind of out of alignment. Or you can say, please justify my paragraph, and it kind of stretches the text, and it it all looks beautifully lined up on the left and right-hand side. And and the sense of justify that we're getting at here is the sense of making something right, bringing something into alignment. And this is closer to what Paul means when he says a person is justified by faith, not by works. A person is made right, straightened out in their relationship with other human beings and with God, by faith and not by works. So if sin is a relationship with God gone wrong, if sin is the raggedy edge of our lives, then faith is that relationship with God justified, straightened out, put right. We are justified by faith, says Paul, and not by works. And so Paul takes pains to show that even Abraham, the the founding father of the Jewish people, knew God first by faith, not by works. And so Paul goes on, if this is true even for Abraham, then it is true for all people, for Abraham's descendants 
and also for the Gentiles. None of us know God by our own efforts. And none of us can lift ourselves out of our pit of broken relationship with God. The only solution on offer, says Paul, is that God first reaches out to us. And Paul's conviction is that God does so in Jesus. And he makes the point three times in the passage. I don't know if you spotted them. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. The mending of the weakness, the sinfulness and the enmity, the mending of the broken, unjustified relationship between humans and God must begin with God reaching out to people in the depths of their pits of despair and sin. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. What comes next, of course, is the human response. As people have to learn to then live in the light of God's gracious act of mercy, of reaching out to us. And for Paul, this is where the Jewish law fits. It is Israel's appropriate response to God's calling them to be God's chosen holy people. And one might say other appropriate responses are also available. Do the Gentiles need to keep the full demands of the Jewish law? Well, Paul argues that they do not. That is the appropriate response for the people of Israel. The appropriate response for the Gentiles sits somewhere else. Paul says that the Gentiles must respond with an equally demanding ethic the ethic of the spirit. The person pulled from their pit, who has had their life restored to them, has not been rescued to then dig new pits that they can fall in next. Rather, they are rescued to live life as life should be lived, in renewed relationship with their creator. The result of this, says Paul, is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Compare this to the basic human condition. Most people are not at peace with God. Just look at the world around us, a world characterised by war and argument and fighting. The sad truth is that most people in this world are not at peace. And this is a symptom of the underlying problem which is that humanity lives most of the time in rebellion against God. The power of sin that Paul spoke about over people's lives separates them from God and creates then the context within which all kinds of destructive behaviours can emerge. Whereas Paul asserts that through Christ, a new relationship with God is possible, a peaceful one. The people of God are called to be people of peace, at peace with themselves, 
at peace with God and at peace with one another. Our rainbow flag here does not only signify LGBTQ inclusion, it has the word peace emblazoned on it. That is our peace candle. We are called to hold the light of peace for a world that does not know peace. Because we know that in dying for all people, Christ has broken the power of sin to dominate and distort human lives and relationships. We are lifted out of the pit of conflict with God. We have the possibility of peace with God. But there is a sad truth that even for us as Christians, we frequently do not live out the reality of this relationship, but it is still there because it is not dependent on us. God has already saved us while we were yet weak sinners and living in enmity. Sometimes we just need reminding. And so Paul goes on to do just that. He underlines the new relationship that is available to those who accept Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Paul says that those who have the grace and peace that comes from this restored relationship, he says they rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Another word, another way of translating the word rejoice here would be to say that they boast in their hope of the glory of God. This good news of a restored relationship with God is something to be excited about. It is something we can speak of, boast of, rejoice in. This is our appropriate response to what God has done. You know, sometimes we can read or hear great theological truths about God. Preachers stand in pulpits and behind lecterns and say things like we are saved and we have peace and we have grace. And these truths inspire us to nod politely and say what wonderful theology. For Paul, this is more than theology. This is a relationship and a life-changing one. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He rarely does. Not only are we to rejoice or boast when things are going well, to rejoice and boast in the peace and joy that we have in our relationship with God restored through Christ Jesus. Not only that. Paul also says we are to boast in suffering and affliction. We saw last week, didn't we, that... Uh, there was a context of persecution in Rome. A few years before this letter was written, um, the, Claudius had expelled the Jewish people from Rome and some of the Christians in the community there had been caught up in this. Paul was writing to people who knew that the Christian life can be really, really tough. The life of faith is not a life of guaranteed success. And so contrary to what preachers of health, wealth and prosperity might assert in either the first or 21st centuries, the true life of faith is life lived after the pattern of Jesus 
that includes his suffering and death on the cross. Against those who would try to shame him because of his sufferings for the sake of the gospel of Christ, Paul asserts that such suffering is instead a clear indication that the work of salvation is underway. Suffering and discouragement are not a reason to renounce God. They are not a contradiction of faith. When I talk to people who are not yet Christians, one of the things that is most often said to me is, how can you reconcile your belief in God with the experience of human suffering? Those two don't match. Paul would say they do. Because you only have to look at Jesus, the suffering, crucified Messiah, the Son of God, to see that these things are part of what it means to be human and that in and through Christ, God has entered into the depths of our pit in order to raise us up to new life. Suffering, says Paul, strengthens patience and matures character, and in the end, leads to hope. And Paul assures his readers that this hope is not idle, because the process has already begun. Verse 5, hope, he says, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The love of God is already in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And this is the concept of the love of God, which I think ties together all the various theological and ethical concepts that we find in this passage. It is all about the love of God. Not, not our love for God, but God's love for us. While we were weak. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, God's love was already poured out for us in and through Jesus Christ. God's love is unconditional and cannot be earned. And this love which God has for us is expressed in his gift of Jesus who gives us the gift of peace with God. And this love which God has for us is expressed in a hope for the future, which in turn gives us a new perspective on our present life of suffering. This hope, this confidence in the future has a firm foundation, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've already seen what this has achieved. Sin ceases to be this barrier between ourselves and God. We enter into a right relationship with God. Our relationship with God is justified in a way that could not possibly happen otherwise. And the death of Christ, understood in this way, is then the ultimate expression of God's love for us. To misquote the hymn we sometimes sing, and on the cross as Jesus dies, the love of God is satisfied. God's wrath is reserved for the twin forces of sin and death, which are at work in the world to diminish, distort and demean humans. Paul makes this point by building up to us 
Someone might die for a good person. Someone might even dare to die for a righteous person. But it is very unlikely that someone would choose to die for a bad person. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says here in verse 8, God proves his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one can claim to be good before God, and thankfully none of us needs to. God shows love for us by doing through Jesus what none of us can do for ourselves. We are, by God's grace, reconciled to God. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are gifted a restored relationship with God. And it is not something that can be earned. It comes only because of God's love for us. And so Paul returns to the subject of rejoicing, not only in the hope of glory, not only in afflictions, but also in God. And he encourages his Christian congregation in Rome to show their joy in their relationship with God. He says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our restored, renewed relationship with God is something in which we can be profoundly joyful. And as such, it should affect the way we worship and the way we live. This is not just something to try and tease out of a rather complicated letter, probably written in a hurry nearly 2,000 years ago. Because Paul's letter, written to real people in a real church with real problems facing real issues, is therefore a letter that speaks to us. They were trying to share the gospel of Christ to a community that was not really interested in what they had to say, and that, for me, sounds rather familiar. And Paul's message to the Christians in Rome is, I think, as relevant to us today as it was then. You see, if we want people to come to know the good news about Jesus, and I hope that we do, friends, if we want people to find the way out of the pit in which they are trapped, if we want people to be released from the power of sin over their lives, which distorts and breaks apart the potential for their relationship with God, then we need to let the relationship we have with God affect our worship and the way we live. There is a challenge here for us. What does your relationship with God mean to you? What does mine mean to me? Where does our life of prayer take shape in our lives privately and publicly? Where does our sense of God's presence become real for us? What if we can grasp in our lives truly what it means for God to love the unlovely? What if we can grasp what it means for God truly to love us? Me. You. Can you feel the love of God for you. We're going to take a moment before I ask the panellists to come up.
I'm going to ask Philip just to play quietly. Um, it's, it's the tune of the hymn we're going to sing after the panel. Take time to think about what you have heard God saying, and then the panelists will come up and they will share what they have heard God saying. And together, maybe in the midst of our gathering, we will continue to hear God speaking to our hearts. But a few moments of quiet as Philip leads us on the organ. Tommaso and Judith are forming our panel this morning. I was very much taken with <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Simon's first uh, illustration about the pit. And, and you, know, you know sometimes when you think of something, you say, where did I hear that? Who said that? What Bible verse is that? And I thought, oh, I thought of a Bible verse of God didn't send us a philosopher or a general Good though those things can be, no, he sent us a saviour to forgive us. And I thought, oh, where's that verse? And I, I, I'm afraid I googled it during the sermon, please forgive me. Uh, and, and actually, it, it was the, the late Queen that said it in a Christmas speech a few years back, and I'd, I'd misheard it as a Bible verse. That's a rather dangerous thing to do with something a monarch says, maybe. But um, it's very true, isn't it? You know, we, we were in a pit and, and really what, what, what was needed was getting out of the pit. And um, uh, I think that, that set, set the scene very, very well for us as we, as we consider uh, this passage. So then, uh, Judith, perhaps you could share some thoughts with us on this morning. Yeah, I was really struck by the Love-hate relationship with Romans. Probably. Is, 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 is that coming out? 
Um, yeah, as I was saying, I, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Romans because in my experience it's always been one of the most weaponized epistles in the New Testament. Um, think of the, the various clobber texts that have been used to uh, condemn various types of behavior. Think of the pro-establishment type messages of, you know, everyone must be subject to the authorities. Think of the, the ways it's been used in anti-Semitic sort of ways to suggest that uh, the Jewish heritage of our faith is of no value. And I don't think it's any uh, error that, uh, any coincidence that the greatest proponent of justification by faith from Romans was also one of the most virulent anti-Semites in, in Christian history. Uh, and so it, it's been a difficult one for me. But what I really appreciated about um, reading this passage today was thinking about how the result of justification both individually and corporately is reconciliation. Um, it's about putting things back together, putting things right, being right with God, not only as individuals, but contributing to God's putting right of all things. Um, and one thing that really struck me was the way that Paul grounds it in the idea that God is one, a very Jewish concept, but um, he justifies all of us, justifies everyone, reconciles the creation all on the same basis, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female, radical equality. And, and that was something that, that struck me and led me to think about so often we use our distinctive um, folkways and markers as you know, our church personship as means of division when actually they are, it's not that they're not valuable or not to be respected, but they're second order. Paul never repudiates Judaism or his Jewish heritage but lives from a more generous understanding that's at the heart of that tradition, that it should be a blessing to all nations and a place of hospitality. And so that has me thinking about how we can, how we can be that. And I think the last thing that struck me in it was, um, as Simon was talking about, the way that affliction produces endurance and hope, um, in the context that unity is strength um, and we can have confidence despite everything we face as individuals, as the body of Christ in a hostile world, we can have confidence in the grand reconciliation that God is bringing about, the right making at the end because we are beginning to um, experience it now both for ourselves and and amongst ourselves and think about how we can make that real for for other people
So the idea that we all need to hang together because otherwise, assuredly, as the man said in the past, we'll all hang separately, uh, is, is something that really resonated with me and has me, has me thinking about um, how we relate to, um, to each other within the, within the body of Christ, not only um, here amongst our own congregation, but how we relate to, um, to other congregations and how um, we can work for the, for the unity of Christ in a divided world. Um, uh, about unity in particular, isn't there? So, thank you. Uh, Tomas, I wonder if you can come and... Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, and thank you, Simon, for the sermon. Uh, I will pick on, on one theme uh, which made me uh, reflect while I was reading the sermon this morning, this connection between um, suffering and faith. And this reminded me of a brief text that uh, Dr. King was asked to write in 1960 by Christian Century. He had submitted an article on nonviolence, and the editor wanted him to further elaborate on how his own experience of suffering due to violence in the context of his uh, struggle for civil rights affected his faith. And Dr. King produced a very short article and I would like to quote an excerpt because, again, I think it really captures something important on how uh, suffering can be um, powerful in shaping faith. And this is the quote. My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness or seek to transform this suffering into a creative force. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I've tried to make of it a virtue if only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to, to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unheard suffering is redemptive. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block, and others consider it foolishness. But I'm more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So, like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, I'm going to leave us where Simon left us actually with that challenge of do we rejoice in the new life we have? Um, A very wise lady once said to me, if you really believe everything about the Christian faith that you say you believe, you ought to be the happiest person in the world. And notwithstanding we might have griefs and sorrows, but I think there's a truth to that. Do we, do we rejoice in the hope that we have? What does that look like in, in your own life, in your own heart? Does that help you when things are hard? What does that look like in your own attitude, in your attitude towards others? So let's think on that. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, in whose presence we take refuge, in whose presence we seek consolation, and to whom we lay down our troubles. We come to you because you are God that is faithful. We are none other that is worthy of your praise. We come before you to recognize how issues of the past often come to haunt us. Give us the wisdom to address issues like war, migration, climate change, social and economic injustice. Give us the strength, O God, to take these issues seriously so future generations will look back and examine what we have done as each generation than to blame the one before. Help us with the understanding of one word, acknowledging issues that seem far away, that can also affect us all. We pray for the prevailing refugee crisis, both in the United States and European borders. We pray for wisdom that is international instead of political. We pray for the reign of King Charles, that you will continue to bless the people of the United Kingdom as they continue to show example to the rest of the world. We pray for their support in international development and all the auxiliary organizations that play their part in seeking to resolve complex problems. We pray for Sudan, the people of Ukraine, as they seek peaceful settlement to their conflicts. You are the God of the Gentiles, the meek, the poor in spirit, the weak and the strong, as your grace is sufficient for us all. You died for us while we were yet sinners, where the grave has been the symbol of our redemption. You are the one that is able to keep us from falling. This is our prayer. Bless us now, hence and forevermore. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, 
support for weak, help the afflicted, show love to everyone, love and serve the Lord, basking in the love of God our Father, in the grace of Jesus Christ our Saviour, and in the power of the Holy Spirit our Comforter. Amen.